tonight, if you'll look with me, please, in James uh, chapter 1. James chapter 1, we want to finish up our sixth-week study uh, on stress and anxiety. In James chapter 1, I begin reading at verse 9, if you will, concluding at verse number 12. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he's exalted, but the rich in that he's made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of its perish. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Blessed is the man, or happy is the man, that endureth temptation, which means trials or tests. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. I'm sure that you are well aware, and you've probably heard through the years, uh, that Christian life is like a tea bag, uh, in that it is good for nothing until it's placed into hot water. Well, trials and tests are like hot water. Uh, we don't like getting into that hot water because we squirm, uh, because we said it hurts, we says it's not fair. We get in that hot water of trials and, te and, and tests and so forth, and we think we're not going to survive. We think the water is going to overtake us. We're going to burn up in it. We're never going to get out of it. And you know that's what trials and tests are like uh, many times in life. Uh, trials and tests in hot water, they're profitable, though, to our lives if we learn how to deal with them in the correct way. Now, James mentions three types of men here within the scripture. A man of poverty, a man of plenty, and a man with pressure. Uh, there's something about the gospel that takes every one of us, no matter who we are, where we live, what we do, how much money we have, the gospel puts every one of us on level ground along the way. I understand that. Trials and tests we all experience, the rich, the affluent, the poor, and the needy. I'm here to tell you, the trials and tests has a way of putting each and every one of us on level ground along the way. Now in ministry, I deal with a lot of people on both ends of the economic scale. I have visited with people that lived in gated communities that had the circular driveway, the well-manicured uh, lawns, uh, and, and the flower beds were second to none. And the house looked like something that would take a picture right out of the Better Homes and Garden. And I've also visited with people that lived in, in houses that had barred windows. Uh, they lived in areas of their life where there was violence in the street right out, and the stench of the poverty was all around them to the point that they were almost embarrassed uh, to have me to come even to their house. With that being said, I've been with those in poverty, and I've been with those in plenty. And yet the truth of the matter is at one time or another, we all will go through trials and tests that will bring stress and anxiety to our life. It doesn't matter if you have a million dollars or you're a million dollars in debt. We're all going to have that equal path where we have trials and tests that will bring anxiety and bring pressures to our particular life. Yet among the rich and the affluent, among the poor and the impoverished, stress and anxiety because the trials will be profitable to each class of people if we learn how to deal with them. I don't know about you, but I'm learning every day in my life uh, by the grace of God how to better handle uh, the trials and tests that come my way. Now, since I've done this series of studies, I believe there's been more trials and tests hurled against me than I can remember in a long, long time. And I've got to take myself back to James and back to what I've been trying to teach you and let it be applicable to my own life and say, Lord, there's something you want me to learn here. I remember back in the mountains one time, a guy worked in the coal mines and one of the trains loaded with coal went around and, 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 and it toppled uh, over and all that coal uh, from those cars were spilled out. And I believe in those days they had the hand shovel it in. And he cussed the blue streak. He, I mean, he just tore all the pieces. And one old man beside him said, I don't know if it did any good, coal still spilled. So even after we do our little expressive whatever, uh, the problem is still there many times in life. Let's look for a few moments about the man of poverty. James said, let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted. The New International Version puts it this way. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. 
The word humble in the Greek language means lowly, and it describes one who's low on the social economic scale, one who is relatively poor, and one that is powerless to do very much in life. The world may think that such a person is not worth very much. You know, it's amazing when you see people that's low on the social economic scale of the world, especially many of the affluent think that person's not worth anything. Uh, they're just a grudge up on society. Let me tell you something. There are no big eyes in God's kingdom and there are no small U's. Every man and woman, regardless of his or her bank account, regardless of what side of the, of the road they live on or what subdivision or subdivision they may live in, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son for the whosoever's of this life. I rejoice in knowing tonight that whether you're rich or whether you're poor, you're equally loved by the almighty God. He shed his blood for the rich and he shed his blood for the poor and every one of us are the residuals of what he has done. This is one of the greatest mysteries in the Christian life and one of the greatest blessings of the Christian life. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. Uh, the, the low shall be made high and the high shall be made low. That's what God does in life. I remember many, many years ago when I pastored in North Carolina, one day I drove down to uh, Durham to the hospital to visit someone it was about a three and a half hour drive, if memory serves me correctly, somewhere like that. And on the way back, I stopped at Olive Garden to get a soup and a salad. And that particular day, I had on just some more rugged looking clothes uh, because I had other things to do that day. And, and, and I wasn't dressed like a pastor. I, I, was, I wasn't even dressed this good. And I went in Olive Garden and they snubbed me. They seated me. The service was terrible. The food was great, but the service was terrible. The next week, I took my wife and my children with me to visit, and I had my suit on, and they were dressed up. Same restaurant. They treated us like we were important people. You see, when I had a suit on, hot tip, good tip. When I go in looking impoverished, he's poor. He can't do a thing for me. We tend to judge people by what they look like and what they drive and what they wear and where they live. But let me tell you, God judges the heart. And the truth of the matter is, whether you're rich or whether you're poor, we all go through trials and tests of life. The Bible said in James 1.9, let the brother of low degree rejoice that he is exalted. When I read this text, I cannot help but think of the man by the name of, of Noah. Think about this for a moment. Can you imagine the life that Noah must have lived? Can you imagine the excitement of hearing the voice of God and the excitement of doing what God asked him to do? But then ever the hell he went through from listening. It's one thing to hear the voice of God. It's another thing to do what the voice of God says. There's a lot of people that hear the voice of God, but they don't want to do what the voice of God tells them to do. But not so with this man by the name of Noah. Uh, hearing the voice of God, he obeyed it. Uh, he was told to build an ark in a special way with special wood for a special purpose. The Bible said, God said, the world is going to be destroyed by a flood. At that point in history, it had never rained. It was the dew that came up. It was the waters that ran, but it had never rained at that point. And for 120 years, Noah listened to the voice of God. He obeyed the voice of God by building the ark in a special way out of special wood for a special purpose. Can you imagine during that, during that particular time, he worked. He was, uh, he was not applauded for his work. He was not encouraged by anyone uh, uh, along the way. Can you imagine what it must have been like? What are you doing, Noah? I'm building this big boat. What for? It's going to flood. <laughs> what do you mean? It's going to flood. You, can you imagine how he was laughed at, how he was ostracized, how he was persecuted, how he was poked fun of? But yet he listened to God in the midst of what other people were saying and doing. And here's the point of the whole thing. God exalted him. As you hear what the word of God said, God exalted. Let the brother of low degree rejoice that he is exalted. God exalted Noah. When other people saw him as an idiot, when other people saw him as, as somebody, you know, a French fry, wave my happy meal, if you will. You're building a boat. It's never rained. What are you talking about? He heard from God. And because he listened to God, there had to be a lot of stress and a lot of anxiety. Have you ever listened to God and obeyed? And they go, did I listen correctly? 
Am I obeying correctly? Am I doing what God, that brings stress within itself. But then when you have a lot of people coming against you, people of, of know-how, people of, of wisdom, uh, people of substance, people that are your peers, people that are smarter than you are, people that are educated more than you are, and they're saying, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. But the whole time Noah said, but I've listened and I've heard and I'm obeying, God exalted him. Sometimes we would rather have the applause of man and the approval of man more so than to be exalted by God. And the reason being is because too many times we're too earthbound in our thinking and too earthbound in our living. And we live for the here and now. But men like Noah, they were living for what was beyond the here and the now. So he was able to say, I might have my trial and testing by serving God and obeying God. But I would rather have trial and testing obeying God than have trial and testing by disobeying obedience to God. And I believe that's what was going on with him. Now, James remind us that the brother in humble circumstances should take to heart his exaltation or his high position. As believers of Jesus Christ, as followers of Jesus Christ, as disciples of Jesus Christ, we belong to him and we are on our way to heaven. You've heard me say this for the last 17 years, and I'm going to say it again. We are not citizens of earth going to heaven. We are citizens of heaven passing through this earth. Amen. And I believe the more we understand that we will, we're great value, and we're great value to God. And with that in mind, we can be happy, we can rejoice, and appreciate the fact that we are possessing some of the things in this world now that has been given to us from the world to come that we can never lose. I've got a hope, not in this world, but the world to come. I'm not going to lose that. I've got family in the world to come. I'm not going to lose that. I've got an inheritance in the world to come. Nobody can take that away from me. I'm not living for the here and now. I'm living for what's over yonder. And it's getting to the place, the older that we get, the more we have over there than we have over here. And with that being mine, life will be tough and life is going to get tougher and these last days are upon us. But we must remember that all the trials, all the tests and all the challenges are nothing more than a bump in the road as we travel this highway to glory. There's no place you can go to exempt, to exempt yourself from trials. No place you can go to exempt yourself from the tests of this life. We may get very little applause from this world. We may get very little uh, uh, encouragement from this world because this world is our enemy. And we may be tolerating this world more than we are celebrated. We've all been there. We too may be laughed at. We may be made fun of. We may be mocked and we may be, tempt, uh, we may be uh, persecuted for our faith in Christ. But we may look more like we're poor and impoverished in this world to many people. But friend, I'm rich. It may not be in my bank account. It may not be in stocks and bonds, but I am rich tonight. My father owns the cattle up on a thousand hills and he's never had to sell a one of them to meet my need. He's got a retirement plan for me that is out of this world. I'm rich tonight because my father is rich. It may not be a silver and gold, but it's a richness that we've never, never inherited to this point. If all you have is hope in this world, you're men most miserable, if you will. An impoverished person must look beyond the physical circumstances that we have tonight and understand we must abide in the spiritual value that God has placed within us. Paul said this, but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there the Lord Jesus Christ. If we're living for the here and now, trials and tests will have no meaning. But if we're living for glory, trials and tests can take on a brand new meaning. It's readying me for that day. Now, when I played football, we practiced and practiced and practiced and practiced for the game day. We would put on helmets and pads and we would bust each other up. We would run plays. We would be exhausted. They'd put dummies before us, and we'd have to hit the dummies. And we'd play again and another play, and we memorized our plays, and we'd go over them in our sleep. Why? Ready for game day. Had we not practiced, we would have not been ready for game day. The trials and tests that come our way are like a practice preparing us for the day that we can stand before God.
And many of the trials and tests that we go through, it, 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 it can bring damage, if you will. It can bring scars, if you will, where we have been hurt and rolled over and spit upon and persecuted. But those wounds turned into scars and we can stand before God and say, because of you, Lord, I endured. Let me tell you, the only thing made by man in heaven are the healing scars in the body of Jesus Christ. And I cannot help but believe that all through eternity, we'll have the opportunity to see those scars. And he bore for you and me as an everlasting reminder, this is my love for you. We're not going to go to heaven scarless. Are you with me? And I believe as we stand before the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords, we can say we went through the battles, the trials, and the tests. But it's the joy that I'm entering in today that makes it all worthwhile. Jesus said for the joy that was set before him, he was able to endure the cross, despising the shame. Joy of the cross, joy in crucifixion, joy in splintered uh, crown on his head, joy in stripes upon his back, joy with nails in his hands and feet, joy uh, with his back wide open. How? Because you and I were on his mind and on his heart. He endured it, the sufferings and the stress and the anxiety that came with that. And yet he asked us as well, I love you so much. Trials and tests will come your way, but you endure. Yes, you might get some scars, but they will be the rewards that we take to heaven. Praise God. I hope that makes sense. Let's look now at the man of plenty. The early church, like many churches today among us, have people both in poverty and people that are in plenty. And there are many today, if you will, the church are made up of people on both needs physically as well as financially. But among them, there are many that are financial wealthy. Look at the early church. There were some very wealthy and affluent people in the church in Jerusalem. You see people like Nicodemus, people like Joseph of Arimathea. You look at some of the disciples like John. He may have come from wealthy stock. You take some of the people, the disciples, they were men uh, that had some prominent government positions in, in, in tax collecting and so forth. They were pretty wealthy people. And yet if you think about Barnabas, he owned land in Cyprus. He was a wealthy man in his own right. Poverty and wealth were together within the church. Poverty and wealth has always been in the church together. But notice the words of James again. But the rich, in that he's made low, because as the flower of the grass, he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof faileth, falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. In reality, James is saying that while those who are rich according to the world's standards may take pride in their possessions, the Christian man of plenty takes pride in his spiritual position. We don't take pride in the money we have. We take pride in the position we have in Christ. The rich man with any sense at all understands that everything that we have here materially, mildew's going to get it, the moth's going to get it, Rust is going to get it. Somebody's going to steal it. Somebody's going to inherit it. Something's going to take it away from us. He knows the grass is going to wither. He knows the flower is going to die. But treasures laid upon the earth are going to, going to be destroyed. But that which we lay up in heaven will have forever and ever and ever. I'm sure you read as I did uh, this past week, uh, the man that owned uh, Hobby Lobby, David Green. His net worth is $14 trillion, I think it is. $14 billion, forgive me, $14 billion. And yet David Green said that God had called him to be a steward over the money and not an owner over everything. He said as an owner, I'm paraphrasing, as an owner, that can do more to corrupt. <clears throat> but as a steward, I can do more to bless. He said, I'm giving everything I've got away. <clears throat> He gave his whole Hobby Lobby away, put it in a trust fund. His lawyer said, why don't you divide it up for your children, your grandchildren? He said, no, they've got to learn to struggle to get where God wants them to be. And if I give them all this money, I may have ruined their lives because money can make you greedy if you're not careful. And they may not know to find their own way. They may not know to get where they're going. 
He said, I'm putting it in a trust fund and I want to be a steward of what God has given me and not an owner of it. You don't find guys like that much anymore. You may think he's a French fry away from a happy meal, but he believes with all of his heart that God gave him the power to get wealth, that he might take that wealth and distribute to people that are in need. They just donated over $500 million to a museum in Washington, D.C., I think it was, and coming in all kinds of criticism by the world for what they did for one reason or for another. Brothers and sisters, poverty, I remind you, is temporary, and so is prosperity, especially when you compare it to the eternal glory that we shall have with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, throughout eternity. With that being said, poverty nor plenty makes any of us happy. Poverty don't make you happy. Plenty don't make you happy. Jesus said a man's life consists not of the abundance of the things that he possesses. One man said, I know money can't make me happy, but I can sure look for it in more extravagant places. Can you look for it? I probably can. People with plenty should rejoice. People with plenty should rejoice. We've got something in Jesus that we can't lose. And people with poverty ought to rejoice. We have something in Jesus that we can never lose. Amen? Now, if our happiness is based on our position in Christ, we can be satisfied for time and eternity. But if our happiness is based on our possessions, then we ought to heed the words of James once again. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grass of the fashion of it perisheth, so also shall the rich man fade away in his way. The person in poverty, who in the eyes of the world isn't worth very much, should find lasting joy and satisfaction with Jesus who elevates him to a high position. This was never made more clearer to me than the first time I went to Africa and spent three months back in 1981. I was a young man in those days, about 25 years of age, just graduated from Bible college, went to Africa for three months. Never have I experienced poverty as I saw there. Never had I smelled such hideous smells than when I smelled there. I've gone back to Africa several times and get off the plane and that smell hits you right between the face. Can't explain it. Brother Randy Phillips, before he died, went with me in Africa and he said, Pastor, explain to me what Africa's like. I said, Randy, I can't. Well, try said, out, Randy, there's no way I can explain this. So he goes to Africa with me and we walk around for a couple of days and said, Pastor, ain't no way in the world you can explain this to anybody. And I said, no. But those people were rich. They had no money. They had but a change of clothes on their back and some didn't even have that. They lived in mud huts with dirt floors, with grass tops, with bat dung that would knock you down, the smell. The animals lived with them inside their huts. They cooked on open fire. The water that they drank, they bathed in it, they urinated in it, and they got it to drink and cook with. They're sickly people in those days. They've come a long way but so impoverished. They would eat mullet and foo-foo and stuff that only God knows what they would eat. I ate horse, I ate monkey. And that night they went up to that big rat. I said, I ain't, I'm checking out of here. And they would be offended if you wouldn't eat what they gave you. And they didn't want to feed them. I sat down at one meal and drank seven bottles of what we call soda. Don't know what it was, but I drank, I chugged it, man. What am I saying? They would walk for miles to the church. And the church was just a brush arbor. There might be a log sitting there and they would all be tired from walking and working. And they had these little old hoes about this long and they'd work out there all day long with the babies tied to their backs. Money, they didn't know what it was. Good housing, they didn't know what it was. Electricity, you're kidding me. And somebody would be sitting on the log and they'd walk by and see somebody that was asleep and they would work themselves in and knock somebody off that end of the log or on that end. They'd get up and try to work themselves in and knock each other off. But anyway, they were just so tired, so morose looking. But they'd say, let's stand and worship the Lord. Without any music, their hands would lift to heaven and down their faces would stream the tears and they wouldn't put on and they would shout praises to God and give God glory like I've never been in a place like that in my life.
And it would go on what seemed to be for 40 minutes and 50 minutes. Put me to shame. I'm going, let's move on with the program here. And they would take a cowbell from out behind the pulpit and, and, and ring it to say, okay, calm down. It's time to get in the word. And that was like sick him to a dog. And another round of the Shekinah praises to God. They could not rub two pennies together. But they had something in their spirit that made me look impoverished when it came to the things of God. And friends, we often measure success according to what we can see outwardly. But I think God measures success in our life according to what we have inwardly. And those people had it going. The person in poverty who in the eyes of the world isn't worth very much should find lasting joy and satisfaction with the reality of knowing that Jesus Christ, God's son, has placed us in a high position. And the man of plenty should remember that his only lasting security is not in stocks and bonds, and not in Wall Street, not in our bank account, not in where we live or what we drive, but it too is in the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In dealing with stress and anxiety, both men... Poverty and plenty. We should understand tonight that we look to God as the author and the finisher of our faith. We understand that we look at it from a heavenly perspective and not from an earthly perspective tonight. Now, because both men, both classes of these men represent, uh, they all deal with stress. Plenty doesn't hinder stress and poverty doesn't hinder stress. Do we get it? It's all going to be there. The gospel has a leveling effect. Think about this for a moment. In Jericho, Jesus and his disciples met two men on the same day. One man was in poverty. The other was in plenty. Think about this. As they passed by Barnabas, a poor, blind beggar, to him, he says, rise. The same day, they walk down the street and they see another man by the name of Zacchaeus, a wealthy tax collector who climbed up in a tree. And to him, Jesus said, come down. To the poor, it's come, it's rise. To the affluent, it's come down. The ground is level at Calvary. There are no big eyes and there are no small news in the kingdom of God. If you're rich, you're poor. You have plenty or you're impoverished. We all go through trials. We all go through tests. Our money or our lack of will not exempt us from the trials and the tests of life, which brings the stress and the anxiety that we must all, all contend with. Now let's look at the man of pressure. Be you poor or be you rich, each will have his or her fair share of pressure and stress to deal with in this particular life. The Bible said, blessed is the man or happy is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Satan wants the stressful times in our life to cause us to stumble, to mumble, to murmur, and to complain. But if God allows these trials and tests to come our way, that we might grow up and stand on our own two feet and look at these things eyeball to eyeball and do as did the Apostle Paul. None of these things move me. Now I'm going to make a bold statement here and you don't have to agree with me. But I can deal with stress and I can deal with trials and testing a whole lot better today than I could 30 years ago. I pray to God we all can which says we are maturing in the things of God. The word endure or persevere in some translations is the verb form of the noun we saw in James 1.3. And here it says, for him that shall endure temptation, it means a staying power. S-T-A-Y-I-N-G, staying power. Perseverance is not some morbid response of a person who sits down and bows his head and passively endures uh, the rebukes and testings of life. Perseverance is respond to the person who bears up under stressful circumstances. We bear up under stressful circumstances. It's easier to run. It's easier to resign. It's easier to run away. God knows for pastors Every pastor at one time or another resigns on Monday morning or Thursday night. That's Thursday morning. That's the most time pastors resign more on Monday morning following a Sunday service than any other time during the week, followed by Thursday morning after a Wednesday night service. 
There are more pastors dropping out of ministry today like flies into soup. They're giving up. It's stress. It's pressure. They're financial stress. After 2020, with all the COVID thing, many churches have never bounced back to what they were. It is a stressful time for pastors and for lay people equally as alike. Maybe you're facing some stressful situation today. What should you do? Some say run away. Go look for a better place. But James said, stand up under the stress and pressure of life. Hold your ground. Submit to the Lord and let the trial make you and not break you. Somebody say amen to that. What you're going through by way of stress and anxiety can be profitable if you deal with it the right way. It's not meant to destroy you. It's not meant to kill you. It's meant to mature you and to mature me. Now, regardless of your life, your job, your vocation, or retirement, there's a certain amount of stress and pressure and anxiety that every one of us feel every day of our life. There are deadlines to meet. There are budgets to balance. There's agendas to fulfill. There's responsibilities to do. There are people, toxic people even, that we have to deal with. Uh, there's all types of goals to meet and yada, yada, yada. That and so much more produces pressure in our lives, whether you are a leader or whether you are a follower, whether you are a boss or whether you are a blue collar worker, there are pressures in each position that we have. Goes without fail. On top of that, there are pressures in the home. We all know this. With the uncertainty of the hour we live in, there's pressure to put food on the table. There's stress and anxiety of putting gas in our tanks. Now, there's a challenge today with our hike in electricity. Are we going to be able to meet that budget yet again? And the list goes on and on. Rising tuition costs and food prices that are going up. Other essentials needed for life. And many times we have more money than we have month. And there's other times we got more month left over than we have money. And that's what's happening to many today. All these produce pressures. And the list goes on and on that are too numerous to mention today. But they all are areas of stress and anxiety we deal with in our life. James is writing to those under pressure. Happy or blessed is the person who perseveres under trial and stands his ground. How in the round world are we supposed to be happy when we're going through hell? And be honest, is that not what stress and anxiety and trials and tests do? It's a living hell sometimes. How are we supposed to be happy? Because after the test, we're going to receive a crown of life. That's what he said. I sometimes think that we're more afraid of the test than we are excited about the crown of life. We're too earthbound in our thinking, too earthbound in our living, when we need to be more heavenly minded than we are earthly minded. Now you've all heard people say, he's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. I don't find much of that. I find most of us are so earthly minded, we're no heavenly good. But when we go through the trials and the tests and the anxiety and the stress, it's going to be worth it all because we're going to see Jesus and we're going to receive a crown of life. In the ancient Grecian games, a wreath was placed upon the head of the victor as a sign of honor or a sign of victory. There's a crown in what Paul had in mind. He wrote to Timothy in the prison cell and said, I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me on that day, not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. The individual that stands firm or receives the crown of life, and God has a special reward for patient sufferers. In the end, stress is profitable. It's not what we're going through, beloved. It's what we're going to that really matters. A crown of life. Well, we'd rather have the accolades of man here or the crown of life there. Answer that question yourself. Is it worth the test? Is it worth the stress for a crown of life that we know nothing about? You know, sometimes to live for something you've never seen it's sometimes hard to endure what we see knowing that it's going to exchange one day for something greater that we've never seen. That means we're human. 
But we must endure. They didn't say enjoy. We must endure until the end. It did not say endure till the end. It said endure unto the end. There's a big difference between those two statements. Well, stress is part of today. But remember, stress is predictable. It's not a question of if stress comes. It's a question of when is stress going to come? When is the trial coming? When is the test coming? It's not going to go away and not a one of us in this room will ever be immune to trials and tests that produces stress and anxiety. Also, stress is problematic. We talked about that the second week. Stress brings its own certain amount of problems. If we deal with stress, stress won't deal with us. If we don't deal with stress, stress becomes destructive. How well I know Anybody else like that out there? Stress can be destructive. Stress is also, if you will, paradoxical. How can we count it joy when you go through a trial? Because we know in the final analysis, we are going to go to heaven. And the outcome of enduring to the end is that crown of life. We also know that stress is purposeful. God allows us under, uh, to go through testing, uh, to put us in the furnace that we might come out as pure gold. And we said last week, it's, the, the, the Greek word means like putting in a refiner's fire, a piece of, of, of metal. And that metal is melted down by that heat to where all the impurities rise to the top and all you have is pure, the pure gold. The same way we are in life, we go through the furnace of trials and tests. In order that the fire is not going to destroy us, it is going to purify us and get rid of the drag, get rid of all the scum, get rid of all the stuff that's unlike Jesus. And all that's left is the purity of what Jesus Christ wants us to be. Stress is purposeful. And finally, stress is profitable. That's what we said tonight. Think about the crown that's waiting for you in glory. Well, no big deal to me. Well, it's going to be a big deal when you get there it's going to be a big deal when you get over there. I'd hate to go to heaven and not receive any crowns. Well, I don't believe in that, friend. I don't believe in working for anything. Well, how come you have a job now? You're working for money now. You're working for retirement now. You're working for insurance now. Uh, there's a payday coming, let me tell you. And, I, and the Lord keeps the good books, praise God. In the vocabulary of Christianity, we have words like victory, overcomers, conquerors, and so forth. The word victory implies struggle. The word victory implies warfare. The word victory implies it ain't going to be easy, Jack. I read a story to illustrate my point. Consider the, the struggle that a butterfly has working itself out of a cocoon. A little boy one time saw a branch and saw a cocoon on that branch. So he cut the branch down with that cocoon in it and took it into his bedroom and placed it in a prominent place. And when springtime came, he began to watch that little cocoon begin to try to open up for that butterfly to come out. So the boy saw the struggle and he tried to help the butterfly. So he got a, a bit of scissors and he cut a slice right up through that cocoon that would free, did a C-section wheel right on that cocoon to let that butterfly out. And the boy thought he was doing the butterfly flavor, but, uh, flavor a favor but the butterfly could not fly once it was free of that cocoon because it's the struggle of getting through that cocoon that exercises the muscles of that butterfly causing it to fly. But the boy taking the struggle out of that butterfly's life, that butterfly was ruined for life because it could not fly. That, my friends, is what stress and anxiety and trials and tests do for us. They make us not intended to break us, but to make us into the men and women that God desires us to be. Perseverance must finish its work so that we may mature and be complete and lack nothing in our walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When you read the Gospels, we see that no one was ever more confronted with trials and tests and stressful situations than was the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about it for a moment. He knew the stress of knowing that his family from Nazareth thought he was a little bit left of center. They thought he was a bit ticked, a little crazy, maybe a madman, something mentally disturbed about Jesus Christ. I mean, think about this. Jesus goes out into a wilderness and listens to a man preach that eating bugs and honey and dressed in, in, in camel's clothes. 
And, and this, this nut from the desert baptizes him. Jesus goes to the graveside and talks to demon-possessed people. Jesus did things that seemed to be a little strange, a little odd to the world. And his brothers and sisters were going to scratch their head and go, what's wrong with this guy? We want to stay away from him. Something odd. Can you know that brings stress when your family don't believe in you? And then think about the fact he trained his disciples for more than three years. And yet the stress and the pressure and the anxiety of making sure they were learning that they were getting it. You can hear it in his voice from time to time. Why am I with you for so long? Why are so little faith? And then to know in the final end when the chips were down, they all forsook him. One even denied him and the other simply betrayed him. You think that didn't bring stress? And look at Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, praying, sweating as if there were drops of blood, where he said, my soul is exceeding sorrowful to death. He, his heart was so stressful, he sweat drops of blood. Let me tell you, there's got to be a lot of stress in your body to make your pores give out blood. It's amazing to me what he went through. He knew the stress of being falsely accused, of being beaten, of being mocked, and finally crucified the worst of any death that any individual could ever die. And yet, you look and you see what Jesus went through. Talk about high anxiety. Jesus became the model for us to learn how to deal with trials and tests and the residuals of stress and anxiety that follow. I could go on and on about the stressful situation on a daily basis. He, ex he experienced physical stress, mental stress, uh, he went through all types of family stress, work-related stress, spiritual stress, the list goes on and on. But maybe one of the reasons he got away so much from the crowd, to get away from those stressful times. Jesus prayed before he went into trials. He prayed while he was in trials, and he prayed when he got through the trial. I want you to point out something to you. Hang with me. Jesus got away often. He had to get along to meditate, to remember the scriptures, to rehearse the scriptures, to talk to his heavenly father. He did not do life alone. He did not try to do life in his own ingenuity, his own wisdom. He sought the face of the father in prayer. He understood the word of God. And sometimes we need to walk away from the pressures long enough to get our thinking straight and to find some quietness for our own soul. As I mentioned, Jesus also knew spiritual stress. All of the gospels, we find Jesus' priority prayer. In fact, he prayed more than anything I, anybody else I can ever be reminded of in the word of God. He prayed before the stressful situations, as I said, during the stressful situations, and even after the stressful situation. In Gethsemane, we're him praying, my soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Here is the real, here, here if you will, is the battlefield for stress. It's played out on the battlefield of prayer. The real battlefield is pray, played out on the battlefield of prayer. I have, I've watched this in my own life. If I try to talk myself out of the stress, it's not going to happen. If I try to entertain myself out of the stress, it's not going to happen. But it's only when I go to the Lord in prayer and pour out my complaint and pour out my need and tell God about my problem and leave it there is then and only then when that stress is really, really relieved. James said, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God who giveth all men liberally and upbraideth not, it shall be given him. Let me close this series out by making a few observations. Number one, in order for stress to become profitable, there's some things that we really ought to do. I didn't say you need to do, I said we ought to do. To begin with, we need to take responsibility for our physical realm. I read something the other day, I think on a church marquee, 60% of our body is water. I'm not fat, I'm flooded. Anybody else feel that way? We're not fat, we're just flooded. But there's something to be said about exercise. That means we add exercise to our schedule. Some of us said, man, that's just going to add more added stress to my life. And it probably will in some ways. It also means a proper diet would really help us along the way. We need to take responsibility for our mental and our emotional realm as well. We need each other. We need each other's support group. I talked to someone today that you would not even know, but I talked to this individual and they said, because of the sickness I've gone through, suicide entered my mind. 
And this was an individual that was a staunch Christian, been serving the Lord probably for 65, well, probably close to 70 years, if not more. And the thought came, not that I would do it, but the thought was there. We need each other, friend. Sometimes stress is bigger than we are. Trials are bigger than we are, but we need the church. We need each other. Not to put a happy smile on and say everything's fine when hell is tormenting us on the inside. There's nothing wrong with saying, I need you. And you need me to help us get through some of the things that we're going through in life. <coughs> Life's about <coughs> Life is about relationships. I don't smoke. I just got a cough. I think my granddaughter gave it to me. Life's about relationships. Jesus spent a lot of time with Martha and Mary and Lazarus. There was, there was things in that house that he loved. A good place for R&R, a good place for rest and relaxation. He was there more times than not. We take responsibility for our spiritual development. We've got to feed on the word of God daily. We can't expect to get everything we need from God on a Sunday morning service. We can't expect to get from God on a Sunday night service or Wednesday night. We've got to take this book for ourselves and eat it. Drink of its milk and eat, of its, eat of, its, of its meat and digest it and live by it. We need the prayer time and the city time in the word of God, devotional life and prayer life, waiting on the Lord. Church attendance helps, but church attendance is not the cure-all. It just adds to it. In the days of high anxiety and stress that comes from life, we've got to learn to cast all of our cares, all of our anxieties upon him because he cares for us. The church, while stress may be predictable, problematic, paradoxical, purposeful. It can ultimately be profitable. But James said, blesses the man who perseveres under stressful trials. He shall receive the crown of life. Echoing that theme are these words that John wrote. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison so that you'll be tested. And when you have tribulation for 10 days, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Going to heaven is not easy. Going to hell is a whole lot easier. But going to heaven is a whole lot better. Fanny Crosby, who endured the stress of being blind in her entire life, she penned these words. Great things he hath taught us and great things he hath done. And great our rejoicing through Jesus, his son, but purer and higher and greater will be our wonder, our transport, when Jesus we see. Thirty years ago, I went through one of the most severe trials of my life. <clears throat> I had heard a clarion call from God six to seven months prior to it being fulfilled. I prayed and I fasted and I waited upon the Lord and God orchestrated it exactly the way he had spoken seven months prior to the minute detail, the day of it. God confirmed it, reaffirmed it, confirmed it again. And it all worked out except one man submarine me and it never worked. I felt betrayed by God. I felt betrayed by people. And I, my faith was shaken. It just about destroyed me. God, I don't understand. I'm following you. You got to realize I was 30 years younger. First severe trial. Not the only one, but one of the most major severe trials of my life. My wife couldn't help me. My pastor couldn't help me. Friends could not help me. Preachers couldn't help me. And I finally had to get along with God in a little cheap motel room. And I said, God, I'm not coming out of here until you give me an answer. And I said, and you better hurry because I don't have very much money. And God spoke to my heart that night and gave me some solace. But in the midst of all that, my wife wrote this poem for me 30 years ago that I've always cherished. And I hope you don't mind me sharing it with the congregation. And she wrote the test. I don't stop to tell you as often as I should just how much I appreciate you. I thought you understood. For God has richly blessed me with a man of God like you who provides for and protects me every way you should. Even though you're now struggling with questions in your mind, just how God worked things out, you have yet to find. Trusting is the only answer to him. In him who has wrought before such a peace and comfort to you by listening to his word. 
God has a special time that we know not about. If we only hold to him, believe and never doubt. For God is working all things out to those who love the Lord, even though man has failed you like many times before. So I trust this will comfort your heavy heart and mind and know that many are praying with your welfare in mind. For you have given richly of yourself to all mankind and preached his word, yes, daily, for Jesus you hoped they'd find. Yes, you've been uh, unto many an example, strength, and friend, and we are standing readily to help you uh, see the end. For with this test has passed along, the light again you see, you'll give strength to countless many because you trusted and believed. That was signed on May the 21st of 1992, 30 years ago. I went through that trial and I made it. And I came out stronger, battered, beaten, and scarred, but I made it. I had a hard time saying, God, if I heard your voice and I did, I have a hard time getting behind the pulpit and say, thus saith the Lord, because I can't trust you to fulfill it. And if I didn't hear your voice, I can't get behind the pulpit and say, thus saith the Lord, because I can't hear your voice. But God brought me through. And the trials have been more severe since then. You mean it? Yes, I mean it. But with each trial that comes, God shows me something more of himself. And friend, that's what they're for. Don't allow a trial or a test to be wasted. Grow from it and learn from it. I close with this tonight. Back in 1895, Andrew Murray in England was suffering from a terrible backache, the results of a long time injury. One morning while he was in his room, the hostess told him a woman was outside, wanted to talk to him. She was in distress and wondering if he had a word for her. Mary handed her a piece of paper he'd just written and said, give her the advice I've just written to myself. And here's what he said. In the time of trouble say, first he brought me here. It's by his will I'm in a straight place and that I will rest. Next he will keep me here in his love and give me grace in the trial to behave as his child. Then say to her, he will make the trial a blessing, teaching me a lesson he intends me to learn and working in me the grace he means to bestow. And last say, in his good time, he can bring me out again, how and when only he knows, end of quote. Therefore, I'm ready by God's appointment. I'm here by God's appointment in his keeping under his training for his time. And brothers and sisters, that just about sums it up. You may not like trials and testings, but buckle up, they're going to come. He's not punishing you. He's testing you and trying you that you might win a crown of life. Would you stand up?